become a lot of hurdles to overcome. You, you can't undo, you know, 70, 80 years of history overnight, uh, but uh, we have to start somewhere. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Impact Studios podcast series here at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. I'm your host, Jerry Davis, faculty director of the Impact Studio, where we harness design and business acumen to create equitable, sustainable solutions for organizations. Creating a business today requires a radically different set of activities than it did even 10 years ago. I'm delighted to be talking to Tom Segru from the uh, New York University, formerly uh, University of Pennsylvania, and globally renowned expert on Detroit, author of the epical book, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, uh, about Detroit. And um, I wanted to start by giving a little sort of a background on where we are today. So Detroit's 140 square miles, um, 80%, which is about the size of Boston, San Francisco, and Manhattan all put together, but a population of six to 700,000. Um, 80% of the white collar jobs in the city of Detroit are held by suburbanites. Conversely, 70% of employed Detroiters work outside the city. And yet there's no mass transit between the two or pitifully little. And so it's sort of cut off. We've got the city of Detroit mostly surrounded by this donut of mostly white suburbs. Uh, and really very difficult to get between them and sort of a mutual hostility. And uh, I grew up in one of the nightmarish white flight suburbs. And if you ask people there, um, how do we get to this peculiar situation? They would say it all started in 1967. Um, There were race riots and people burned down the stores in their neighborhood and then things fell apart. And your book has really completely changed the conversation about Detroit and you know the origins of the urban crisis um, by saying that was not in any sense the, the start of things, that that was the culmination of processes that had been in place for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And you know, as uh, you know, in 1900, Detroit was a pretty tiny place. And in 1919, it was a world center of the automotive industry. Both my grandfathers moved to Detroit in 1919 to become welders on the Model T factory and stuck around for a couple of generations. So how how did we get to this situation? (laughs) Yeah, well, Detroit is really a study in contrast. It was, as you pointed out, and your your grandfather knew um, the most important city in the United States, arguably in the 1920s. It was a boom town. It was attracting uh, hundreds of thousands of um, migrants from around the United States and immigrants from around the world in search of economic opportunity. And it was generated by the mighty power of the auto industry. But uh, by the 1940s, there were several you might say chronic conditions that were beginning to uh, afflict Detroit that would have really long-term consequences uh, that led up to the um, depopulation and disinvestment that have characterized the city for most of the past 60 or 70 years. And uh, I mean, let, let's let's begin with the post-Second World War II period. We think of Detroit as you know, the arsenal of democracy. It's it's a place that is humming in the 1940s. Um, its factories are at their peak workforces. There's no international competition for auto production. But already by the late 1940s, and especially the 1950s, the auto industry and 
auto suppliers are in search of cheap labor. Uh, they're in search of different kinds of sites to construct new factories, and they begin moving out of the city, first to the outer suburbs of Detroit, um, increasingly to small and medium-sized towns in the upper Midwest, uh, and then increasingly to the area that we call the Sun Belt. Uh, and in the process, Detroit loses a lot of jobs. I mean, between 1948 and 1963, Detroit loses about 130,000 jobs, largely to the restructuring of the auto and related industries. And that's happening way before the rise of international competition, uh, you know, way before the oil shocks of the 1970s. And it has really long-term effects because those jobs, unionized, um, middle-class jobs with good benefits, um, create real opportunity in the city for um, for blue-collar workers um, in, in ways that um, create intergenerational mobility. You're the grandson of welders, uh, and, uh, and, and now you're a college professor, in part because of the fact that the auto industry really created mobility and wealth for, uh, for, for a couple of generations of Detroiters. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so one one thought is that the city grew really quickly, and there was something unsustainable about that. But as, as you point out, the auto industry was already sneaking away from Detroit at, at a fairly early stage. Uh, when Ford built its third factory, the Model T factory, it was not in the city of Detroit. It was in Highland Park. So the famous moving assembly line giant factory to make inexpensive Model Ts was not in the city of Detroit. And then his next big factory, the River Rouge plant, was in Dearborn. Uh, and so Ford, you know, iconically associated with Detroit, had been heading for the suburbs uh, for more than a century. So it's, it's kind of great that they're coming back and, and rehabbing the train station. But, but that movement away from the city has been going on, as you say, for a very long time. And people don't don't pick up so much on that. Well, tell me a bit about the sort of the the, the great migration and sort of the, the role of Detroit, I guess, in the rise of the black middle class, and then sort of what, um, I guess, the, the the hostility that one still sees today between sort of the city of Detroit and the surrounding area, if you can. Yeah, well, Detroit has long been a very racially polarized city particularly in the aftermath of the great migration of, of African-Americans from the South to cities, including to Detroit. Um, that migration began uh, during the 19-teens, uh, prompted by the collapse of Southern agriculture, the rise of uh, industries like Ford, and Ford recruited among African-Americans pretty early on. Uh, and, uh, and it also was you know, the fact that you could move to a city like Detroit and hope that you would be free of some of the everyday violence and indignities of living in the system of Jim Crow in the South. But almost from first arrival, Detroit became a place of really significant racial conflict, particularly around the question of housing. Um, African-Americans moving to the city looked for the kinds of housing opportunities that every migrant did. And they ended up moving into sections of the city with relatively affordable housing, particularly on the east side. Um, neighborhoods that were had been populated by um, German and Polish and other Southern and Eastern European immigrants. And it was a it was a place that we we, we begin to see conflict almost from the get-go. Um, whites 
still hang precariously, precariously onto their own middle-class status, fight the movement of African-Americans into their neighborhoods. They resist. Um, by the Second World War period, when there's a huge influx of Black uh, migrants to the city, um, we, we start to see a pretty sustained process of Black movement into uh, white neighborhoods and violent white resistance. That is, white residents of Detroit neighborhoods. I found more than 200 violent incidents that accompanied usually the first or second um, black family moving into a white neighborhood. And that would be window breaking, arson. In one case, you know, some whites attached a chain to their truck and pulled off, uh, you know, the, the pillars holding up a porch, uh, all as ways of basically saying, we don't want you here. But white resistance was only one part of the story. Um, another part of the story was the real estate industry. Um, real estate brokers in the 1920s, as they professionalized, um, develop a code of ethics. And one of the key elements of their code of ethics was you should not introduce an incompatible, to, to use their words, group or element into a neighborhood. And that meant uh, not showing houses to potential Black homeowners or renters in predominantly white neighborhoods. Uh, and those practices took the prejudices and the discrimination that were already pretty widespread among white Detroiters and built them into the market. So that's the second factor. And then the third uh, was that uh, the federal government begins to encourage home ownership in the 1930s. It's, it's a moment of crisis, the Great Depression, right? The housing market has collapsed. The housing finance market has collapsed. Foreclosures are, are happening all over the place, including in Detroit, um, because the economy is, is, is really tanked. Uh, and so the federal government steps in and creates the modern home mortgage system uh, that we we still have in place. Long-term mortgages, 30 years, 20 years, um, low down payments, uh, interest spread over a significant period of time. It makes it possible for tens of millions of Americans to own their own homes for the first time. Michigan, Detroit, the nation went to being um, places of homeowners, but white only, with a few exceptions. That is, uh, uh, the uh, federal housing agencies that administered uh, home finance, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the Federal Housing Administration, and the Veterans Administration, all created in this period, uh, restricted uh, lending to places that were racially homogeneous, and that is mostly white. So this flood of housing finance is coming in. It's allowing individuals families to own their own homes, often for the first time. It's underwriting large-scale suburban housing development. But uh, until the 1960s, those places are for whites only. And so you've got this combination of individual right resistance, real estate practices, and home financing underwritten by the federal government, all of which simultaneously reinforce the patterns of segregation that uh, uh, we see in metropolitan Detroit. And most importantly, those processes uh, can't come to be seen by, by white Detroiters, by everyone, as inevitable. Birds of a feather flock together. You know, people live with, with who they want to live with. No, it's not inevitable. It's a direct consequence of grassroots resistance, uh, real estate practices, and banking policy. And so that creates the pattern that we still see in the stark divides between uh, largely white uh, suburbs and and uh, and a handful of municipalities and school districts in the metropolitan area that are still overwhelmingly non-white. Oh.
And so this brings us to 1967. All of the, all of the forces you've been describing have been in play for decades, even, even generations uh, leading up to the events of 1967. Um, what would your be... And I think people may be a bit more familiar with events since then. I could tell you the folklore in the sort of uh, all white Detroit suburbs like Livonia is um, if you are black and you get off the freeway within three blocks, you're going to be pulled over for something that that between sort of real estate agents and the municipal authorities or a lot of uh, at least by folklore practices in place that reinforced this really strong dividing line between um, the city and the suburbs that we see today and, and the unwillingness to, to have workable mass transit, even in a world where like at nine o'clock and five o'clock, everybody swaps places between the city and the suburbs, um, getting to this sort of strange situation we're at today. We don't really have a minute or two left. Do you, do you have a prognosis for, uh, for Detroit? Are there, are there forces in play that you see as being um, optimistic or interesting or things that we should be paying more attention to since you were sort of tracing these, mm -hmm. these tectonic forces that weren't quite as visible to people? Well, there uh, are, are big structural issues that we need to address in Detroit, um, transportation being really critical. Uh, but I would say three things. First, Detroiters are the most optimistic people that I've ever met. Uh, uh, and, uh, and that optimism can be a, a driving force behind efforts to change the city from the community level up to the state and national level. That's one. Second, relevant to your students, um, Detroit is actually situated really well in an era of climate change. Uh, uh, and, and I think over time, uh, the city's got, uh, and the whole upper Midwest has a lot of advantages as, as the rest of the country gets warmer, including one of the best supplies of water in the world. Um, third, uh, um, we have now, I think, some energy around community organizations and grassroots activists to, to start building from the bottom up the kinds of infrastructure, including the solar and, and uh, uh, electric infrastructure um, that you and your students are talking about that can pave the way towards, uh, towards Detroit being a model for the future. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate your being willing to take time and share your insights with us. Really appreciate that and hope we have a chance to connect again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sherry. Uh, and good luck to you and your students. This has been the Impact Studio podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast was produced in collaboration with Glenn Bugala. Bugala.